Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to your tech questions. My name is Micah Sargent, and of course, I am joined across the internet by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Micah, how are you? I'm doing quite well this morning. It's another day, means uh, another dollar and another <laughs> another opportunity to answer questions, my friend. Yeah, we got some fun ones this week. Uh, I think we should just jump right in and talk about uh, Apple iCloud and Google services for families. Pretty, a pretty interesting topic. Yeah. So Shane writes, what is better to create an iCloud account or a Gmail email address for a child that's just going to use the stock iOS mail app? No Gmail specific things, no Google Calendar, anything like that. Will one be better than the other in terms of features or security? So I think before we go real far into this, I think my overall thought is this is more about ecosystem than just like an email address. Like in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. Gmail is more powerful than iCloud email. It has better filtering, has a labs, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with your email and Gmail that you can't necessarily do in iCloud. But... I think if you look at like the broader use, uh, one may be more attractive than the other, depending on what else needs to be done. So I, I would encourage anyone looking at this, uh, creating a an account for a child, uh, look at you know the devices in use and that sort of thing. So iCloud Family Sharing we've we've spoken about on the past. It does a bunch of stuff. Like it's sort of one of those like sleeper Apple products. We use it at home now. I set it up. I don't know, maybe like six months ago, and we have purchasing approval. So if the kids on their iPad want to purchase something or download something, we get notification and we can approve it or deny it. They get shared iCloud space, like that that iPad get that iPad gets backed up. My wife and I's a separate iCloud photo libraries, you know, all sync. All have like a big pool of data that we just pay once for once a month, and nice. then you get some device management stuff. So some things like I talked about, like approval, disapproval. Uh, you can turn on Find My Friends, Find My iPhone, all of that stuff if you're connected into an iCloud family pretty easily. And if you have existing purchases and stuff, like you, there's still a little setup to do. But I would say if everyone is on iPads and iPhones, then I'd maybe go iCloud. Even though the email may not be quite as good, I think you get this other stuff bundled with it that may make it more more useful. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up, although there, I'm sure there'll be some people that get a little grumpy. Uh, there is a fundal, fundamental, not fundamental, a fundamental difference between the business models of Apple and Google. Um, and so if you have concerns about your uh, child's privacy and, you know, you're setting up an email address that doesn't have it, where they I can't remember what the regulation is that protects kids under a certain age on the internet, but I don't know about setting up a Gmail account with uh, with the age popped in that's under that age. I think you might have to set one up that lies about the age. Uh, don't quote me on that. I just know that uh, some some sites will just say no, we can't you know accommodate a child under this age because right. of these laws. So my point is, uh, Apple is fundamentally. Uh, like just very hard headed in a good way about privacy. They're very mm-hmm. protecting of user privacy and Google makes a lot of the money that it makes by using 
consumer's data by using its user's data for a bunch of different things. And so your Gmail account is going to get scanned to serve up ads and things like that, whereas an iCloud account is not going to do the same. So if you have concerns about that in particular, and we pair it with the fact that you know, you're going to be using the iOS mail app, you're going to be using uh, iOS calendar potentially, and, and all the other Apple features, I really do think that you're better off uh, going with iCloud and uh, iCloud family sharing, as you mentioned. Yeah. So Google, like you're, you're right in a normal like Gmail account, all that stuff is true. There is some fine print. So it's pretty new to Google. They do have what they call family accounts now. So it, okay. it's kind of like iCloud family sharing where it's like you have parents and you have children and the parents manage the children and set a bunch of rules up to protect them and that sort of stuff. And it works across a bunch of things. So like I could even go in and say my kids can watch this sort of stuff on YouTube but not that sort of stuff. So it's, it's very broad in the sense that Google has a lot of services. You have the ability uh, with Gmail in particular to um, – Block specific email addresses. Kids can't go in and forward all their email to somebody else or things like that. So you have some control there. But one thing I really like, and like it is way down in the fine print on this page, family accounts, so children accounts on Gmail don't get ads. They are out of the Uh advertising uh, side of things, which is really great. And this has not always been the case because this Google family stuff is is relatively new. So that's a plus. I mean, I'm glad they've done this. But I still agree with you that that Apple is much more privacy focused, and you know I and, and like look like I use Gmail for my personal email address. My company runs on G Suite. Like we have Google Apps emails. Relay is nothing but a collection of Google Docs and Google spreadsheets. Like <laughs> my entire business, I, I do that because it is worth the trade off for me for the services I get. If to make that decision about a child, it's a different set of parameters. And so Absolutely. we use iCloud family sharing because we all have Macs and iOS devices. It's all built into that stuff. And I like that Apple is much more privacy focused than Google. So I think we're both saying we really like iCloud family sharing, uh, but we're answering a question bigger than Shane's about more than just email <laughs> because, it, because it is just more about email, right? Like even if the kid's just going to start there, they're going to end up with other things. And Depending on how old they are, you can change those restrictions over time, and it's uh, there's a lot to consider. So I would check out both. We have links in the show notes to both Apple's and Google's family pages. Read through there, see what makes sense for you. Uh, you probably can't go wrong with either, but I think both of us vote iCloud family sharing. Yep, that's going to be my vote. Fair? I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on to topic two. Eh? Anthony asks... I'm moving from a late 2012 MacBook Pro with 8 gigs of RAM, a spinning hard disk, a spinning hard drive, and an optical drive (laughs) to a new 13-inch MacBook Pro. Any tips before using Migration Assistant, other than, of course, backing up my old Mac before starting? Firstly, congratulations. You are... It's a big upgrade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're going to see some some big changes there, yeah. and uh, suddenly everything's going to be moving so quickly for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had one of those 2012 MacBook Pros. It's like the last one before they went Retina, and I had an SSD in it, and it was a great machine. I had an i7. It ran super hot, but I really I did a lot of work on that MacBook Pro for a long time. Um, but Anthony, you're totally right. 
the number one thing is have a backup of your old Mac before starting. You should have a backup of your Mac anytime. Yes. Goodbye drive, turn on time machine. But there are some specific things uh, past that that you should look at. And some of these are going to be more applicable to Anthony's case because it's a little bit older of a machine. But these are still things to think through anytime you're going to migrate. Um, so the first one is if the old machine is not on the current OS, so as I'm as I'm speaking right now, High Sierra, the latest version of Mac OS, you may have applications on your old system that don't work on High Sierra or that you know may be a little bit broken. And so any mission-critical applications, I would spend the time making sure that the version you have will work with High Sierra. A lot of people ran into this with older versions of Microsoft Office not working on, on High Sierra and they had to like upgrade. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye out for that sort of stuff. Old versions of Office... Old versions of like um, Photoshop or Illustrator and Design, any sort of like big application, just make sure that the version you have can run on High Sierra. And if not, you know, be willing to to make pay for the upgrade or whatever it's going to be. That's one I think a lot of people overlook. They upgrade and, all, and a bunch of their apps don't work. Hand in hand with that is some applications may want their serial numbers again after a migration. So again, I'll pick on Microsoft Office because Office 2011 is real bad about this. If you clone or migrate Office 2011, it's going to want your serial number again almost every time. And so if you don't have that handy, uh, you may have to purchase Office again or, you know, as an example, or just, you know, make sure you have those serial numbers handy. A lot of these programs will show you their serial numbers like in, somewhere like in a setting screen. So you can go in and jot them down and have them there. Uh, so you look out for that because it's kind of a bummer to be stuck and then you got to like fix things on on your new system. Ugh, yeah, that's that's not fun <laughs> having to do that. I think, you know, oh goodness, was it I believe our pal Casey Liss uh, has has in the past shared a document that's sort of like the here's how I start a whole new computer and it involves logging out of certain applications uh, because most applications don't do this anymore, but some of the older applications had this fun thing where you had to make sure that you like logged out of uh, or, or like deauthorized certain applications before you could then use yeah. that same license on a new system. iTunes uh, still, you only get like five active sign-ins. And so, yeah, at iTunes, even if you don't use Apple Music, deregistering that old system before you migrate is a good step. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so be aware and on the lookout for those kinds of things. And yeah, I, like it doesn't take needing to migrate to a new computer or switch, switching machines or anything like that to warrant getting your stuff backed up. So do try to uh, now that you've got now that you've got a system that's running without that that spinning hard drive, and you know, you've you've moved on to bigger and better things. uh, If you don't really want to drop the money on a an SSD to serve as your thunder or rather as your uh, time machine drive, then get a nice big old spinning hard drive and plug that in and start backing up your system mm-hmm. because it's just a good idea in general. Yeah. So the else to look for is, uh, is free space. So I, I said this in particular, cause you mentioned you have a spinning hard drive and maybe that hard drive is actually bigger than the SSD in your MacBook pro. Hopefully it's not, but if it is, you may need to, do some data juggling, find some things to leave behind or move to an external. Um, I think that really bit bites a lot of people the first time they buy an SSD Mac because 
generally like the lower SKUs have smaller discs than they used to. So it's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. That is a bummer. But mm -hmm. uh, I think the trade-off in the end can be really great. And I, that, that for me was sort of my moment of realization that I didn't need to keep as much stuff around locally as I thought I did. And so whenever I, you know, upgraded, but lost some space, it was like, Oh, right. There's not really a reason for me to keep my entire, uh, I don't know, final cut pro library local to the disc when I haven't edited any of these projects in years and years, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> literally why i have a drobo because <laughs> even with a one terabyte disc in my imac it's just not enough you know um so i'd say check all those things out and then something else to think about is actually how <clears throat> well something fell in my drawer <laughs> something else to think about is how to actually migrate so if you're running sierra on that older machine or high sierra uh, they can just be near each other with Wi-Fi on, and they make a direct connection, sort of like sort of like how Handoff and uh, AirDrop work. So it's mm -hmm. it's faster than going across your network, and won't and won't sort of slow down the rest of your network. But um, I would definitely say, if at all possible, use a physical cable to connect them. You can do that with Ethernet. You're going to need some adapters uh, for the new one to do that. That's the fa that's a really fast way to do it. But you can also do them directly with target disk mode. So to go from a 2012 MacBook Pro to a new one, you're going to need, from the new machine, a Thunderbolt 3 to Thunderbolt 2 adapter, and then Thunderbolt to FireWire 800. Uh, the Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 2, and Thunderbolt FireWire are both adapters sold by Apple. They're pricey, but you could return them when you're done with them. And it is by far the fastest way to do this. You can totally do it over Wi-Fi, but it's going to take all night. Like, it's going to take a long time. Um, if you're impatient like me or have some sort of, like, again, sort of like me, like, I just rather do it with a cable because, like, I trust cables somehow yeah, more than I trust yeah. wireless. Um, but it'll totally work over Wi-Fi. It's just going to take, take forever. But if you can do a direct connection, it is faster, and it won't uh, choke out the rest of your local network while it does it. So... Uh, we have a link in the show notes to Apple's migration assistant page that walks through a bunch of this stuff and a link uh, to the aforementioned Casey article, which is really solid. Like there's lots of stuff on there that's just like a good, good list of things to think about um, uh, when uh, setting up or or deleting, uh, you know, wiping an old Mac. So you may not need to go through all of it. Like some of this is pretty specific to developers even like no one needs to install FFmpeg, but if you want to, <laughs> uh, it's there. Anyways, let's take a quick break. Does that sound good? I think that sounds great. Great. I want to tell you a little bit about the Relay FM membership drive. So it is August. We are in Relay's fourth birthday, celebrating that this month. And if you enjoy listening to this show, we'd love for you to become a member. By signing up, you get access to a behind-the-scenes monthly newsletter, 5K wallpapers of Relay Show Art, a monthly Relay FM host crossover show, uh, discounted merch on our new store with Cotton Bureau, and access to a feed full of bonus episodes of Relay FM shows published through August and September. So we just published, Micah, the one you and I did for Query, where I interviewed you about so your fun. background and I learned that you were born uh, on the side of the road, which is yes, I still can't stop thinking about, honestly. Coyotes took care of me. It was great. Yeah, 
He's uh he was raised by animals till he was twelve. <laughs> and uh and we did uh download and clockwise other shows we're both a part of. We did our member special together and it is insane. Like I don't know. <laughs> it was a mess. A good happened. mess. Uh bless this mess is is what I have to say about that. Yes. <laughs> uh a real FM membership starts at just five dollars a month. You can learn more by clicking the link in the show notes or going to relay.fm slash membership. Uh, we'd love your support. And if you are a member, thank you very much. It means it means a whole lot to us. Yes, thanks so much, truly. And uh, thanks for listening to to those uh, shows that we put out as well. It's yeah. great. I think that brings us to the speed run. Oh, boy. I have been stretching. I'm ready. You ready? Got some water. Got some good shoes. I got some water. Got the good shoes on. I've uh, channeled my inner coyote, and I'm ready to roll. <laughs> so Michael writes, how do I use reminders, uh, home geofencing, when I don't have a street address for my house? I live on a U.S. military base overseas and don't have a street address for my house that it recognizes as a place. So this is like, hey, remind me when I get home to feed the dog, you know, so it, it puts mm-hmm. a geofence on your phone. And when you get within X amount of feet of your house, it will remind you, Hey, feed the dog. It's handy. I don't use reminders very often, but when I do, it's always for stuff like this. Like, Hey, remind me when I get home to call this person back or remind me when I leave the house to go run this errand. Um, but Michael sounds like he's in a little bit of a funny place about this. So Micah, can you, can you help him? Yeah, absolutely. So the the key word here is that Michael says, when I get home, home is the key word, because you can at any time say, hey, remind me when I leave this place, uh, or hey, remind me when I get here to do blank, blank, blank. Anytime you do that, then Siri just sort of drops a pin on that location. But if you want to have this thing saved as remind me when I get home so that you can sort of refer to that even if you're not currently at the place, then that becomes a little more difficult if you don't have uh, an ability to sort of just save your location due to the fact that you don't have an address. So what we're going to do is we're going to pop into the Apple Maps app and we're going to give Maps a second to determine our current location. It will do so when you see the map sort of shift and a blue dot appears and it's sort of pulsating. You tap on that blue dot and it will, depending on what operating system you have running, will show a little uh, photo of you above that location. And then down below, a card will pop up that says my location. If you swipe up on the card, you'll see it's got latitude and longitude right there on the card. And you choose add to existing contact, at which point the contacts app will pop up. You go and scroll and find, well, I mean, you can just use the search bar or you can use the little sliding uh, letter bar at the side to find your contact card. You tap on your contact card and then you tap update in the top right corner. That's going to add that current location to your contacts app. Then go ahead and hop into the contacts app and make sure that the contact card shows that entry as your home. If it doesn't, you can tap edit and you can tap on the uh, blue section to the left of the address that's popped in there, even if it's longitude, and you can change that to a certain label. So in this case, you'd want to change it to home. Once that's done, Siri will know that that is your home 
And then whenever you use that keyword in your reminders, you'll be able to get those reminders when you leave or arrive at home. That is very, very clever. It's a little involved, but you can make it happen. And that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. So um, I think that should get you squared away. Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Bastion writes, in a recent episode of Connected, never heard of it, ISMH, oh, that's Stephen, talked about converting TIFF to PNG. That is the file format to PNG. I'm curious, what's wrong with LZW compressed TIFF files? And can I convince Stephen to share his script to transcode TIFF to PNG? Stephen, help us out. Yeah, so this is in regards to the Aqua screenshot library, which I published last week which is like 1,500 screenshots of the history of visual design in Mac OS and OS X. It, it took a long time. <laughs> there's a link in the <laughs> show it's notes. it's awesome. Yeah, if you haven't checked it out, there's a link in the show notes. Um, so later versions of Mac OS use ping as its default file format when you make a screenshot. I don't know exactly when that changed. Maybe like, I don't know, like 10.3 or 10.4 sometime in there. Don't quote me. Before that, though, if you made a screenshot, Mac OS X would save it as a TIFF file. And it wasn't like fancy LZW compression makes TIFF files noticeably smaller. But the, the TIFF files, at least that OS X used to create in the early days, were really pretty big. And I didn't want to host those big files. And so I just converted them all to ping. So they'd match, you know, the file format would be the same all throughout the screenshot library. And some people complained about that. To my eye, it didn't really down-res them in any way. You can still download the full-size images from the site. And I did it with just a very simple Automator action. So in Automator, you can feed it a bunch of images, and then you can basically uh, preview has some some tools in Automator. And you can just say, export as a different file type. And so I, I loaded the images into Automator. I told them to export as PNG. It's like a very two, simple two-step Automator job. And it churns through them, exports as, as pings, and then it's done. So it's it's pretty fast, even with big files. Um, but that's really the reason I did it. Maybe there was a better way to do it, but uh, that's in the past now. So they look good. I'm not I'm not worried about the quality of the screenshots. So I like that. That's in the past now, and there's nothing you can do about it. I am not booting the public beta again if I can help it. So. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> All right, so to round this out, we have a question from Barry. Barry writes, any tips for making Logic Pro peg all the CPU cores when bouncing, which is a term for exporting from Logic, similar to what Forecast does when transcoding? Logic seems to make pretty pitiful use of the cores on my computer, no matter what uh, settings I have Logic set to. So in Logic, like, I use it every day. Logic has a billion settings. One of them is you can change, like, processing threads, seems kind of dangerous. I don't know why that's exposed. Um, but the, the this question is getting at logic doesn't seem to be as efficient as something like forecast is in, in multi-threaded tasks. Is there a way to fix this? Um, unfortunately, depending on uh, the, the apps that you're using, they are just set up differently to make use of or not make use of the CPU cores. So you've got, you know apps built to take advantage of multi-threading through and through in every single task that they're doing. Uh, and then you've got apps that are sort of, I, I see these apps as kind of like 
they are balancing the line between like prosumer and consumer and the idea is that they know best they think about how to go about hitting the cpu and hitting these processing threads uh so you you know if you were working on a macbook uh or macbook pro in final cut or logic or another sort of pro app and you needed to keep that battery life then obviously you don't want it probably taking advantage of too much multi-threading to make things go uh as quickly as possible and and i think that that's kind of the idea here is that these these apps are finding the happy medium but something like forecast it I think assumes a certain setup that you have and a certain position that you are going to be in. And so most of us realize that when we are editing podcasts, you can kind of imagine the person sitting at their desk, plugged in, charging, and, you know, if they're using a portable machine and are getting things done right there. So why not go ahead and use all the power that's available? Forecast doesn't need to worry about, oh, I need to make sure that I'm being super power efficient and that I'm not, you know, heating things up because X, Y, and Z, when you can pretty much assume that the folks that are using that app are going to be using it in very particular places. Whereas something like Logic or Final Cut is going to be exposed to a lot more people in a lot more places. And I think that that what ends up sort of being the issue with those of us who are like, yeah, but I just want to go ahead and have a setting, a slider setting inside of Logic Pro 10 that's like, I want it up to ultimate use. And we don't really have that. Right, Stephen? Yeah. I mean, it would be nice if those if those tools would take better advantage of the modern hardware we have, but they don't. Um Something like Logic is still faster on a faster machine. It just isn't as efficient as something uh, something like Forecast, which like Marco made to like make MP3s as fast as possible. Like it is the the goal of the application to be uh, as efficient with its with its hardware usage as possible. Like taking advantage of every single ounce of power in a, in a machine. So it's a bummer, but um, you know. A day that Logic doesn't crash is a good day for me. I can't complain too much about that. So. <laughs> oh, I'm dear. just kidding. Logic's pretty good. So. Yeah, it heard you, and now it's not going to work for you for the rest of the day. Which so. would be bad. That's awkward. <sighs> well, I think that I think that does it. Yeah, we've done it again. Uh, that that that's that's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for listening to Query. You can find show notes this week at relay.fm/slash/query/slash/thirty-eight. To submit questions, you can tweet with the hashtag AskQuery, and we'll see it. In the meantime, you can find Micah on Twitter at MicahSargent and his writing and hard work over at iMore.com. I'm ISMH on Twitter and write 512pixels.net. And until our next episode, Micah, say goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios.